This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm James Carlton. Welcome to God Forbid. Are some things right or wrong regardless of time and place? Or is good and bad, right and wrong, just a projection of culture? What's right and good for us now in Australia may not be in a different time or place. It's all relative. Well, we're living under a dictatorship of relativism, according to the former Pope, Benedict. He warns there are no fixed certainties in the postmodern West, and as our world becomes more complex, there's even less to be certain about. So how should we navigate this 21st century life when it gets foggy? On God Forbid this week, a panel to discuss clinical psychologist Dr Kathleen Gregory. Welcome back. Thank you. Nice to be back with you. Thanks, James. Also, Dr. Michael Jensen, Rector at St. Mark's Anglican Church in Sydney. Welcome back to you, Michael. Good to see you, James. Um, you first, Michael. Is there absolute truth? Uh, yes, but I don't claim to have it. <laughs> I think we need to live in a world in which there is an objective reality outside of us, but it's when we claim to own that that truth that that, that becomes a weapon with which we can beat someone. I think uh, one of the real absolutes uh, that we have to deal with is is our own death. I mean, that is an absolute truth that we all face. So in one sense, there's an, ex- an existential absolute truth that is undeniable. What about you, Kathleen Gregory? I, I like how Michael's kind of framed that a little bit about absolutely truth um, rather than absolutes. You know, there's certainly things that are absolutely true in our experience. The inevitability of sickness and change and impermanence, those things are inevitably truthful in our lives. And as well, of course, from a Buddhist view that we also see potentiality in our humanity, a great source of uh, sense of compassion and to really live truthfully within those, you know, truths of impermanence and change and so forth. So I think that's the orientation from a Buddhist view. If the Buddhists teach everything is impermanent, doesn't that mean truth ultimately becomes impermanent, in which case it's not true in the first place? Well, in the sense, I guess not in the absolute kind of ontological sense that they exist truth, you know, outside of us, uh, but more that they're actually true in our experience. And I guess that's why I was kind of trying to lead off with that idea of things being absolutely truthful in our experience rather than absolutely true. Um, that, yes, if we investigate, we can find the truthfulness of that in our own experience. Michael Jensen, Kathleen Gregory is speaking of truth as an experience. Well, I would, I would want to make something a bit stronger ontologically she used that word Kathleen used the word ontologically to do with being and I would want to say from a Christian perspective uh, we would say there is there is a being called God there is a there is a outside of us um, not just in inside of us so that absoluteness of truth the hardness of reality if you like is not simply experiential it's not simply material what about you kind of drew on three truths. What about if we just cancel out two of them because we won't come to an agreement, God and uh, the subjective individual experience, and just leave what we know, which is science, the ultimate truth teller? Oh, well, because I, I, I think we need apparatus to know it. And also we need to remember that as limited human beings, we only know in part, we know quite partially, and we'll only ever know. Uh, but we're partially. pretty good. We invented science. We've <laughs> we invented science. Well, we invented a, a, a 
a discipline of knowing, which is a kind of communal activity, which involves debate and involves checking and involves involves back and forth and change. Uh, but even so, that shows you there's a, there's a subjective as well as an objective involved. You know, there's a kind of knowing as well as a known, and we can't do without the knowing. Uh, we need to we, and the knower. You can't just talk about a, a a body of truth without then talking about people who know that or approach that and try to know it. Kathleen Gregory, the philosopher Mark C. Taylor, who we'll hear from later, says our world is increasingly complex and that requires of us subtlety and nuance, but our contemporary culture wants and craves for simplicity. You know, we're certain this is right, that you're wrong, that even though someone else disagrees, I have my absolute truth and you can have your absolute truth, even though that is a contradiction in terms. Does this ring any bells for you? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> to use that word. <laughs> um, I think that does feel very true. And in fact, in the way Michael answered your previous question as it related to science, that there is, of course, an subject. And so we're all positioned in certain kind of ways relative to what we take to be true. And and I think, you know, that there's something really so fundamental in what you've said there that relates to that idea that, yes, actually it's, things are very nuanced, are very complex. And we struggle with that because we do want things to be simple. That gives us a sense of control, having a sense of uh, certainty over things if we can kind of understand them where in fact things are much more complex and demand of us, you know, more flexibility, more openness um, and more positionings of not knowing, of not being certain, um, which can, you know, bring for many of us a sense of groundlessness. So I think those, you know, it, it seems, yes, we are more and more confronted with complexity and yet simple answers, simple black and white, the baddies and the goodies, the rights and the wrongs. Um, seem to, you know, continue to hold kind of dominance, particularly through social media. Michael, what do you think about this uh, toxic social media world we live in where each side is certain no matter what you believe, but you say certainty and doubt go together in a kind of dance? Yeah, I think so. That is, I think you need to you need to doubt your doubt your certainties and also doubt your doubts. You need we need to know our, where we don't know. We need you mean to, we should be doubtful, or we inevitably are? Well, I do think we inevitably are, really, if we're honest. But I think we need we need to actually embrace our uncertainties and doubts. We actually need to embrace. There's nothing that should make us terribly anxious about that. We that's the condition of being a human being. We need to actually learn the discipline of saying I don't know. I think they're the three of the hardest words to say in the English language, uh, I don't know. And I know that as a person who stood in front of lecture rooms and been subjected to questions and answers and been on panels like this, but I don't know is really hard to say, but it's actually okay to say, I don't know, because you don't. And actually it's enormously liberating. And it's actually the foundation of, of further deeper wisdom and further knowledge. I think that's that's a really important thing we need to teach young people to, to be relaxed with not knowing. Mm, and this is the exciting part of our hyper-fast modern time, Kathleen Gregory, isn't it? Like each time we learn something and we learn something new every minute of the day, but it seems to bring with it a, a dozen more questions, which are, which are great questions. I think that's right. You know, we have so much available to us in terms of information. You know, you, you don't have to 
have a doubt for a minute. You know, you're at a dinner party and, you know, there's suddenly an argument about some historical event and you just Google it and you find the answer and, oh, well, that's that, you know, sorted. So, uh, you know, it kind of can really, in a way, lead us to think that's kind of how, how knowledge accumulates or that's how it's resolved, that we can just kind of gain that kind of um, handle on the world. Um, but not, you know, not all knowledge is necessarily of the same kind and cannot be resolved in those same kind of ways, which I think is what's, you know, implicit in that question around certainty and doubt and how important, you know, having some doubt in terms of our perspectives on things, our, having some doubt on our certainty. Are you speaking as a Buddhist or a psychologist? Well, James, that's always interesting. I I think both. You know, I mean, I I was a psychologist a little bit longer than I've been a Buddhist. So they both kind of come together. But I do think it's a relevant question, certainty and doubt, relevant to us, not only as spiritual beings, as spiritual persons that I take from being a Buddhist, but also as a psychologist. It's helpful also in relation to our psychological healthiness, you know, having flexibility, having openness, um, are also really important to our psychological well-being and I think part of our spiritual being also. I would totally agree with, um, with you there, Kathleen. I would say uh, it resonates with the Old Testament idea or the Jewish Testament idea of, the, of wisdom, of uh, chokmah, which is the famous uh, principle, is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. There's a number of things to say there, of course, the difference between knowledge and wisdom, the kind of accumulation of facts as opposed to actually knowing how to live in the world and live well in the world, but also that this word fear is there, which actually I think in this doesn't name a terror or an existential, huge existential anxiety, but a a kind of honour and respect, a humility before the world that God made, uh, which then it, I would say, in fact, shows that faith is at the beginning of this. You, You need trust in order to know on RN, it is God forbid we are with Dr. Michael Jensen and Dr. Kathleen Gregory. Much more ahead. The political and moral philosophy of liberalism promises freedom, freedom of expression, equal opportunities, and that liberalism's heart is the individual and how to protect and enhance their freedoms. It's often linked to 17th and 18th century philosophers like John Locke and Adam Smith. In the 21st century, when we're burdened with so much individual choice, does this erode the social ties that once bound us together? Well, Miroslav Volf is a theologian, a professor and founding director of the Yale Centre for Faith and Culture. He's speaking with Stan Grant. You know, it's hard for us to be each on our own, simply as individual, especially bombarded from so many sides by varieties of claims and interests. We are swept by the winds. We don't belong. We don't have any weight. And there is this unbearable lightness of our being. And we often then seek our own sense of ourselves in belonging to groups. Is this then a failure? of the promise of liberalism and democracy, which was a type of weightlessness, a freedom from history, a freedom of the individual to find their own place in the world, is what we are seeing in the blowback against that, whether it be the white supremacist, whether it be the radical Islamist, whether it be the the Mm. movements like Black Lives Matter or whatever they may be, coming from a sense of exclusion, coming from a sense of anger or resentment, 
in others a sense of trying to reclaim a sense of greatness as well? Does that go to a weakness, a failure of liberalism itself? I think so. And it's not just liberalism, it's kind of the, the, the way of life that underpins liberalism, the erosion of communities or erosion of family, erosion of any form of a relatively stable, but at the same time, flexible ties that characterize dynamic lives of communities. Once that is lost, we're looking for some kind of an anchor. And I think unless we find such anchors, if we operate in the context context of uh, liberal democracies with simply with, with a kind of cosmopolitan individualism, I don't think it will be sufficient for us to have a sense of our humanity and sense of belonging. And we will always be exposed then to the threats of such uh, hardened identities that feed from, from hatred, that need differentiation from others in order to be themselves. Theologian Miroslav Wolf with Stan Grant. So, Kathleen Gregory, do you agree we are anchorless with, with no sense of belonging? I think that's a, it's quite a strong image, isn't it? And I, I feel there's this definitely resonates some truth. The thing that really struck me from what he said was the idea of hardened identities. And in that sense that, you know, we harden maybe our own individual identity and what relates to that then is our own individual needs and wants and desires as being paramount, as being most important. And really, you know, that can really also then disconnect us from others. Does that push us to extremism, like he suggested? And that can put, yes, it can push us to extremism. It can push us to also just seeking what we want in our world and what we think our world needs and means to us. So I think that there, there's something very uh, powerful in that idea of, you know, how important um, a sense of belonging and connection that really connects us to her humanity, to what is shared, even in our own pain or our own confusion, that others would also suffer like us, um, or others are confused like us, or others are hardening their identity like we are. Those things feel very important and grounding. But um, yes, I think the kind of liberal project is, you know, actually quite a painful one for us, not only um, on a smaller scale of, of individuals and um, smaller communities, but globally. We're really reaping, you know, some of those effects of that. Michael Jensen, Kathleen Gregory is talking about what Miroslav Wolf had to say in that piece. He changed your life. You know him. Yes, yes. I read a book uh, that he wrote called Exclusion and Embrace, which is a marvellous uh, a uh, marvellous book back in the 90s, coming out of his experience of growing up in the uh, communist Yugoslavia as a Christian there. And, uh, of course, all sorts of crisscrossing uh, identities and ideologies there and really insightful in many ways. And I think he's he's got something here to do, and, and it is to do with our need for roots, which is the name of a book by um, a philosopher, a Christian Jewish philosopher, Simone Weil, just after the Second World War. And she was very perceptive in saying that human beings, we cannot live in historyless, you know, identityless um, individuality. We need, we need solidity. We need a part, sense of the past. But what we've got at the moment is actually a, a deep questioning of the past and a, a sort of destructive attitude to uh, approach to the past, a, a, an attempt to sort of almost remake the past. And so we struggle, especially in the West. We're struggling in, in our post-Christian West. We're struggling with the post-Empire West. But this isn't new, this. is it? Everything's post at one stage in the world. <laughs> we began 
post-dinosaurs and the posts continued. Yes, although, uh, well, I think particularly now there's a, mo- there's a kind of uh, approach to the, the, the past which we don't know how to receive and critique and own the past that we have received. We see this in Australia. I think I uh, saw this at the Queen's funeral. You go to England and they've got a sense of deep, deep history there the way they commemorated the passing of the Queen. Here in Australia, it looked like a a high school assembly. Uh, The only history, because we're sort of secular, so therefore we don't really know what our identity is, except that we're reaching for our Indigenous fellow citizens to help us out. But then it feels like we've appropriated their identity to help us with a sense of the deep past and it's not really really mine. Uh, It's not mine to take, certainly. So I, I see that kind of tension bubbling up for a society like a new world, a society like Australia. So what's the resolution to the tension? Uh, what's the resolution for the t- <laughs> to, the, to the tension? I mean, I, I, I think we need to be better historians and that is uh, actually find a way in which you can see the good and the bad in, in, in the past. You, don't, you neither just say the empire was fantastic and uh, everything that the West has bequeathed is, is uh, without blame, nor do you say it's terrible. Because it's not, it's neither, or it's it's both, and I think we can do both. You don't eradicate the past, you receive it, and I think I think Christianity has a really great way of doing this. It actually has a sort of way of critiquing its own course, because its God is not the church. We worship the Savior, and so its yardstick is not itself, if you like. It's subject to another yardstick. So this concept of repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation, these concepts are deeply relevant to us um, as, as a culture. And I think the faith we're rejecting actually has the resources for us there. On our end, it's God forbid we'll look at fundamentalism and absolutism when it comes to truth up next. Are basic values and moral certainties good things? Surely yes, because if you know what's right, you can take the right path. But what if you're wrong about being right? Mark C. Taylor says certainty can become a problem with absolutism. He's a foundational thinker in the development of postmodern theology, and he sees uncertainty, even irony, as being at the core of a healthy relationship with a complex world. Have a listen. The problem today is not relativism, it's absolutism. The problem is not uncertainty, it's certainty. The ones that worry me are not the unbelievers, they're the true believers. It's not a question of belief versus non-belief. It's a question of different kinds of belief. Kierkegaard says in one of his writings that the form of awareness that most closely approximates faith is humor. By humor, he does not he means a self-reflexive awareness about our own limitations that lead us to see human folly and the like. For Kierkegaard, doubt and uncertainty are inextricably bound up with religious faith. The conflict that we have isn't between faith and non-faith. It's a conflict between different kinds of faith. In one instance, a faith that has as its goal certainty, absolute certainty, and the other, a faith that is always tempered by uncertainty. The tempering of faith by uncertainty does not mean that one can't act and can't take moral action, but it does mean that one is always aware of the limitation of one's understanding of the world and the limitations of one's moral actions. 
Well, since the 1970s, the robust moral certainty of American evangelicalism has increasingly found expression in the political realm. And according to Mark Taylor, that's an increasingly dangerous trend. When you have a world in which there is a conflict between two sides, each of which is absolutely con- is, is fully convinced of the absolute certainty of their position, you have disaster. I mean, that's the world we increasingly have now. Relativism, which is taken to be nihilistic, I think is, is a, it's a problematic term. What people usually mean by relativism is a complete subjectivism in which everything, everybody is locked up in his or her own subjectivity. That's not the way it seems to me it is. I mean, if you look at the structure of absolutism, in an absolutistic world, Everything's black and white. It's either or. It is in George Bush's famous terms, you're either with us or against us. Now, that kind of moral certitude, whether it be on the side of a George Bush or whether it be on the side of Islamic fundamentalists, they're mirror images of each other, which are really finally indistinguishable. It's an oppositional ideology in a world, this networked world that we live in, is a world in which to be is to be connected, in which everything is interrelated, interconnected, intertwined. Right? Truth is relative because everything is interconnected. So it's not that relativism entails a subjectivism that locks everybody up in his or her own subjectivity. To the contrary, it's a relationalism in which everything is interrelated, in which we're drawn out of our subjectivity and into inter- this interrelatedness. It seems to me that the danger in, that we face today is that people in positions of power are operating with maps that don't fit the territory. They're operating with oppositional maps in a relational world. And down that path lies disaster. That's Mark Taylor, retired professor of humanities at Williams College in Massachusetts. Uh, Well, Dr. Kathleen Gregory, oppositional maps in a world of relationships, he says. Only bad can come from that. Mm, Yeah, thank you for playing Maxie Taylor. It's it's great to hear him speak. Um, He really, again, is one of those people working with this kind of nuance and complexity and and kind of calling us to arms to do that at a time when we we really need it more than anything. And that uh, notion of oppositional polarization is, is one that is I want to say terrifying, actually. (laughs) One that is really, there's a loss of compassion, a loss of humanity in that. Well, let's take take an example. I, I believe in God. I don't believe in God. Mark Taylor says, we all have faith. The only question is, are you certain about it or uncertain about it? Yeah. And, and then on top of that, and can you respect someone having a different point of view, a different world experience, different, you know, orientation than you also? But if I'm, if I'm uncertain that there's a God, but I lean on the side that there isn't one, mm. that doesn't mean I'm a man of faith. It means I'm an atheist. Well, if if we're going to polarise things in that kind, well, I mean, as a Buddhist, <laughs> I don't know if you know. I don't know if we even see ourselves as atheists. I don't. So I don't know if you know. Again, if we kind of conceptualise either believing or not believing, and then the consequences of that in the way that you're suggesting, then I think yes, that's a polarisation. But what's more nuanced in that? What is it that someone who positions themselves as not believing in God um, that may also have other kinds of beliefs or orientations that, you know, support a sense of, you know, connection, humanity, spirituality even. I don't know. I guess I'm just, you know, that polarising is the trouble. 
Well, Michael Jensen, you're a polarising person in today's culture. You're a Sydney Anglican. You get uh, pilloried, don't you, on social media if you make some social conservative pronouncement? Oh, uh, yeah, yes, consistently. I, I mean, uh, I, I've, I've got to say I, I really liked what I didn't expect to because I've read some Marxy Taylor and I don't always agree with him, but uh, I think he was uh, ironically absolutely right uh, in that he said uh, faith is ubiquitous. Everyone has faith. Even the non-believer has a faith of a kind. In one sense, it's the virtues with which you hold the faith that you have. That but, but if you say you're an atheist just because you haven't been presented with evidence of the existence of God, where does faith come into that? Because you believe other things. The reason that you don't believe the evidence for the existence of God is because you believe elsewhere. There are other things in which you believe. I think you... What, what, what do you mean, like what? Oh, did you, for instance, that you believe in a certain type of rationality. You place trust in that or you trust the experts that have told you that or you, you trust the evidence of your eyes or whatever it might be. You've already committed to a particular worldview for which there is not complete evidence. So you, you must have uh, faith even to begin knowing anything or claiming anything. But I mean, by that test, everything skeptic, is faith. Uh, yeah, well, I'd agree, I'd agree that faith is... You, Ubiquitous, that is, I wouldn't say everything is faith, but faith is the beginning of all kinds of knowledge. Yes, I would say that. Um, that is, we, you need trust to begin knowing things. Faith in what? Well, faith in the faith in what you're being told, or faith in, for instance, we we live in a uh, in a world in which we depend all the time on expert or secondhand knowledge, and we need to trust that the knowledge we're getting is reliable. Uh, we don't know it ourselves. We don't know many things, if not most things, we don't know them ourselves. We trust them all the time. We, we, trust know, the, we know planes fly, but only some of us know how. how to fly. Or the oncologist, we go to the oncologist because we think the oncologist has got the expertise, but we don't go and learn oncology. And please don't go and try and learn oncology on the internet. No, but That's we don't need to... That's causing us trouble, the, the no, desire that we need to know everything firsthand, you No, see. but we don't need to go to university for six years or indeed university at all to know the difference between right and wrong. Oh, well, I don't, I don't agree. I think we do have... Uh, there's, a, there's a nurturing and a learning about right and wrong. Right and wrong is not instinctual uh, always we need to we need to learn it we need to learn habits that are right and wrong we need to hear from others what what right and wrong are in which case we get shaped by the faith that our mum and dad will care for us certainly certainly we do yeah absolutely so so faith i mean when they could leave uh, yeah the faith may be misplaced so the question is not I mean, this is, this is inter it's interesting because uh, Mark Taylor was talking about the kind of faith you have. I would say the difference is the, the thing you have the faith in really matters. So the, the object of your faith, there are different types of faith because there are different, less and more reliable and less and more good objects for one's faith. This is why there's different kinds of atheisms because you, when you say you don't believe in God, which which God, God don't, don't you, you believe, believe in? in? And I'm not, I don't mean Thor, the Kraken and Jesus. No, 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 no. They're, they're, you're, you're exactly right. There are different kinds of, um, yeah, I mean, there's a great book by John Gray from the London School of Economics called Seven Types of Atheism. He's an atheist himself. It's a very interesting book because he shows actually atheism is a very divided church. Incidentally, Michael Jensen read that book and got zero out of seven. I um, did. <laughs> Kathleen Gregory. <laughs> I was going to say, I just think faith from, uh, also from Buddhist view, that I think faith is also very much something that develops as you engage in the practices and that you 
you know, engage with the teachings and study and so on, that you begin to see that it has effect on you. And in a way, the very things that we've talked about in terms of feeling connected to others, feeling an opening in yourself to um, other people, feeling more flexible in relation to, you know, your world and uncertainty, you know, that the a sense that you are being enriched um, and your life feels richer to you. And I think, you know, in that way, I think faith also can evolve from that kind of engagement, whatever those practices might be um, or whatever belief systems they might be. But the reference point might also be to how you feel yourself developing and opening, whether we call it a spiritual journey. But I would also, you know, speak also as a psychologist, you know, that sense of being feeling enriched and feeling trusting, as, as Michael suggests. But what if you're enriched by horrible things and trust in untrustworthy people? Like we see faith leading to absolutism, to extremism, to fundamentalism. This is, I mean, this is difficult. I mean, that is really the terrible situation that many people do find themselves in. I have a real sense of real deep compassion for that. That's, you know, that we, any of us, that potential to become so lost that we look for, you know, we find it through anger or aggression and so on. So I think human beings can become so lost and so desperate that that, that occurs. And Michael Jensen, where do you see absolutism, fundamentalism, extremism, inside and outside your church? Yeah, I mean, uh, some people would call me a, a fundamentalist. I've been, I've been certainly called a fundamentalist before. I do believe in, in I, I hold my beliefs firmly and with conviction, and I, uh, but I hope I hold them with, uh, with grace and compassion. I think I don't think those two things are antithetically uh, antithetical, but I, yeah, I believe, uh, I believe my beliefs strongly. <laughs> so that, so are that, you or are that you is, not a fundamentalist? Well, or do you adhere to the fundamentals of your church? Well, I certainly adhere to the fundamentals of my church. I'm an orthodox and traditional Christian. Uh, I would own the, the name evangelical even. And uh, I, I think there are moral absolutes. I think there are rights and wrongs. And, and I, I, I'm unapologetic about that uh, well, because about- I think I can live in a world where I can disagree and still, because my beliefs tell me, teach me of the humanity of all other human beings, I can disagree with them without dismissal or contempt. That is kind of key. Um, Well, that's good, but what about when the response is you, by your own admission, are an unapologetic evangelical? What do you say to those who say that you are admitting you're a fundamentalist? I say they don't really know the meaning of the word fundamental <laughs> fundamentalism, and I think I think it's a it's an abuse. It can be an abuse term for anyone who's to the right of me in terms of belief, and so I think it's a it's a term in religious circles that's bandied around uh, too too loosely. I would protest that my approach is more compassionate and robust than many of those who would own the name the term fundamentalism, and certainly I don't believe in uh, in expressing my faith in violent ways, which of course has been associated with much fundamentalism. But I think this it kind of brings up um, something interesting here because because uh, it came out of the Mark C. Taylor quote. Uh, he was talking about, well, no, it's important that we do stand for right, what's right and what's wrong, even though we might say it's an uncertain and complicated world. We do need to stand for what, what we believe to be right. You need Martin Luther King. You need Archbishop Desmond Tutu, you need their conviction. They stood where they stood because they believed they were absolutely right. And, and we must do this. We must have the courage. I think we, the best way to do that, though, 
is you answer your conscience as best you can. And I would use the language of then throwing yourself on the mercy of God. You're not justifying yourself. You are just doing what you know to be the best thing, that the right thing to do in this moment at this point in history, given that you're a limited human being and fallible and liable to self-justification and all of those qualifications. But we must act. Kathleen Gregory, how, how does this <laughs> sit with Buddhist teaching? Um, I think, you know, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I would describe myself as probably a traditionalist in relation to Buddhism as a living tradition, so that it is... It, reflects and is responsive to contemporary human experience because Buddhism, in in its fundamental sense, lives in human beings. It doesn't live in texts. As does Buddhist fundamentalism, which we see. No, well, <laughs> and of course, that's right. And any belief system can be corrupted by human beings, you know. So, you know, I could become fundamentalist about, well, coffee, as some people can. And, you know, and, and I think this notion of rights and wrongs is you know, also interesting, but because, yes, they don't kind of exist in an absolute way, but we can make judgments around what feel, you know, wholesome and unwholesome that we can readily recognise and be moved to act accordingly. And I think we can certainly move towards those and more collectively move towards those um, actions accordingly. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think where we find ourselves in relation to this question, no matter what our faith system might be, is one that I think, you know, what the theme of today's, you know, program is about is this kind of tension of certainty and doubt. And that feels a very human tension that I have to work with as part of my practice um, as a Buddhist, not falling um, too much either side, but that I'm, you know, continue to inspire myself to engage with practices and the teachings so that I, that I can be of help in the world and that I can have self-awareness so that I'm, you know, not getting so lost in those propensities of falling into certainty or fundamentalism in some way in myself. I still want the ability to be able to see in, in a transcultural way that racism is wrong. So this is what Martin Luther King gives us. He gives us an insight in the context in which he was in, which others weren't seeing. So, so he wasn't simply, he res, somehow received the tradition of his faith with enough faithfulness that he was able to not simply look at the experience of, the, of living, growing up in the South and say, yeah, that's just, this is normal and how things should be. And I, I, I think that's where religious tradition and, and a sense of, the, of a moral absolute of some kind here is, is is necessary. I mean, we need we need some kind of way of doing that. If your ambition, Michael, is to see a, a world in which all cultures renounce racism, wouldn't a more contemporary vehicle for your expression be uh, for you to become an activist in the Black Lives Matter movement or something like that? Well, yes and no. That is, that is, I would say, I, I need to. There, are, there are aspects of the Black Lives Matter movement that I don't resonate with, uh, having talked to people who have that experience. But the objects of the Black Lives Matter movement, I hundred percent endorse that, because I must, because my my faith tells me that that racism is endemic in humanity and in me, and uh, that this unfairness is is a blot on civilization and needs to be addressed. So. You know, there might be a, a layer of 
ideology that I don't necessarily agree with with that, but the principle, I think I certainly wholeheartedly endorse. Endorse, it sounds so weak. Yeah, <laughs> so live by try, maybe. Live by, yeah. Well, how do you live by what you say is your inherent internal racism? Well, because for, well, where I live, for instance, I'm trying to build a multiracial community, a community which incorporates people from all ethnic backgrounds. Uh, I also live in the eastern suburbs, which, as you know, is the... Uh, is the uh, one of the most Jewish areas of Sydney, and I stand alongside uh, my Jewish neighbours in deploring the rise in anti-Semitism. Well, maybe you're not racist. Everywhere. It sounds like it. Well, I don't think I'm ideologically racist, but I think my tendency is to like my own kind more than others. Uh, and I know that's true of communities. I know that's true, and as I say, an endemic human tendency that we need to be in constant repentance of. And we like to be certain as well. So certain that we'll even give in to conspiracy theory. We'll look at that up next. <laughs> oh, I love uh, a good conspiracy theory. <laughs> conspiracy theorists and anti-science deniers were alive and well long before the COVID-19 pandemic. But where does denial come from? What makes people think, really be certain that the earth is flat or the moon landing was staged or 9-11 was an inside job? Psychologist Stefan Lewandowski says the answer is uncertainty and COVID, along with the internet, has created a pandemic of denial. Well, uh, first of all, I think it's not at all surprising that there are conspiracy theories out there at the moment. If there's one thing we've learned over the last 500 years or so is that any pandemic will give rise to also an outbreak of conspiracy theories. And the reason for that is that we know from a lot of research that whenever people feel that they have lost control, that they're not in control of events in their own lives, that then some of them become susceptible or are interested in conspiracy theories because they offer psychological comfort. The ironic thing about a conspiracy theory is that if you really think that there are some evil people out there who are causing this pandemic, then you have some, you can take some comfort in that because you can at least imagine that these people could have acted differently and the world would be a different place. So it's a psychological way in which people try to restore a sense of control in their lives. So that is where it is where it is coming from. Uh, I think the evidence for that is quite clear. Stefan Lewandowski, the chair of cognitive psychology at the University of Bristol. Well, Catherine Gregory, does the certainty of denial and conspiracy theories do they really offer psychological comfort? Do you think? Oh. That's a big question. Um, they offer the appearance of psychological, <laughs> you know, comfort. And, you know, just having um, had a number of uh, opportunities to speak with people that have gone down that rabbit hole during, um, you know, COVID in my psychological practice, I mean, I think, you know, the agitation, the kind of fear and, you know, the kind of turmoil that I saw people in who had gone down this rabbit hole in some way, you know, so it, it's a kind of false security. You need to constantly kind of feed it to keep that certainty because it creates such a sense of agitation. 
to, to continue the certainty that, say, this conspiracy exists, you need the what corresponding doubt that you're trying to comfort. That's yes, that's what you keep that's what keeps fueling you to stay engaged and become and it becomes more you know, there's more evidence. There's more, you know, further and further down the rabbit hole. So I think it is, you know, that you know, something like the pandemic, I think, was a huge shock. You know, it was an existential shock for for most of us um, and maybe many of us who, you know, may have felt already a bit on the edge of society in some way or, you know, so that those kinds of ideas can become a real way that a sense of community can develop, a sense of belonging in relation to um, those that know, you know, (laughs) versus those that don't know. Um, that that is has been very powerful um, and and compelling for many people. And yet, Michael Jensen, for most of the history of humanity, we have faced routinely existential threats. You know, like COVID, like when you were when one grew up in the Middle Ages, you'd be very lucky if the plague didn't get you, or famine, or uh, this or that. But we also had conspiracy theories then as well. Where, where does this come from? Well, I think uh, it's a perfect example of the um, the balance of faith and doubt that you doubt one thing, you start believing another. And one of the things that I'd noticed with the COVID situation, the vaccines and the lockdowns, is that those who had little faith in government, um, those who started to mistrust uh, that already had a... Um, a mistrust of uh, standard medicine, for instance, of uh, Western medicine, they started to believe their YouTube um, videos more and more and more. So it was already the fact that they didn't believe they'd lost trust in governments. I've got to say too, there was a sort of, there was overbelief perhaps in in technological and uh, governmental solutions. There was a, a mass reliance on those. And it'd be interesting to go back and look in a couple of years time as to whether the government lockdowns, for instance, were they exactly what was necessary in every single case? We needed to trust them, but in every case, these were imperfect solutions in the middle of turmoil. And that's what you need to recognise. For instance, when it came to the vaccines, I, I had to talk to different parishioners who were resistant to vaccines, for instance. And uh, it, what just was the case, there are there were vaccine injuries. Um, we didn't have perfect knowledge of whether the vaccines were safe or not. We had good knowledge, but it was not perfect, could never be perfect. But into that little uncertainty the conspiracy theories flooded. Because governments are sometimes corrupt, the conspiracy theorist says, well, they're always corrupt, and on it goes. And so what what we need actually is the practice of saying all of our knowledge is based on trust, is imperfect because we're human beings. We just have to go with the best, the best guess, trusting in experts as far as we can. So is there an arrogance on the part of those who say to the conspiracy theorist holder, you're wrong? Uh, Well, certainly saying that they're wrong drives them more and more underground. And so what we need to say is, look, this is the best we can do. You know, it's okay. We don't know everything. Yes, and we make mistakes and governments have made mistakes and there are corrupt people in governments. And so I I think that just gives a more more nuanced picture, a more relaxed picture, a less anxious and contemptuous picture because there's a lot of contempt shown towards those who went for conspiracy theories. I mean, I felt it myself. It was so irritating. Mm. (laughs) It was so annoying um, that everyone wouldn't get vaccinated. But the way to get people to come in is not to treat them with that kind of contempt, actually. It's, I think, to show them that 
the, the complexity of the picture and what it is to know something and act. Whether we like it or not, we're related in the broad sense. I can't say this with 100% certainty, but I can say it's the best guess of people I trust and I invite you to join me. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, I think that's very well put. Well, as we approach the quiz, Ka- Kathleen Gregory, uh, where do you see, if not consensus, at least healing in our polarised world? Um, is it like a unified pursuit of truth or maybe an acceptance that uncertainty and mystery are inevitably part of life? Yes, I think that is, that's a, that's the fundamental question in a way, isn't it? You know, like how do we go forward? How do we create conditions to manage uncertainty and doubt um, within our lives, in our communities, globally? That these questions, these are really important questions that we create, how to think about how we create conditions to be in relationship with these and to be in relationship with others. You know, this question of things being noble or not noble, um, that's another big question, (laughs) you know. Um, And one way that for me that I've made some reconciliation with that question, I guess, particularly as a Buddhist, is, you know, there's things I don't know yet. And that having a sense of openness in our experiences as human beings and what might be possible in our experiences as human beings, I don't know yet, you know. And so I think that has been something that I've really tried to cultivate more and more in myself, that, um, you know, there are things that I know and things I don't know yet. And to constantly kind of, you know, stay in relationship to that and to to that kind of inquiry. And I think to also stay in relationship as much as I can, both, you know, in reality and actuality, in people that I with I encounter in my in my world that may have very opposing ideas to me, or um, you know, have their own um, suite of, bel- of certainty um, and, and doubt that and absolutisms, um, but also imaginatively, that I find that it becomes an important part of my practice too. That I imagine myself engaging, you know, with people that may have very different ideas or whose ideas, you know, as we were saying before, that can kind of make us feel furious and confused. Um, So I do try to use my imagination as part of my practice to also, um, you know, work to open my heart, to open my uh, capacity to of patience and tolerance. And I feel that is really important part of my uh, responsibility, not only um, in terms of being a Buddhist practitioner, but I really feel like as a citizen you know, of the world, you know, that that, um, that we, you know, we need more of that and more sense of ourselves as capable and resourced, both as individuals as a community, to engage in that kind of um, openness. And Michael Jensen, last word to you. Well, I would, I would say uh, that... Uh, the conditions under which we operate at the moment are high anxiety and so what we need is the opposite of anxiety and that's hope. Um, I, I think that uh, faith in our, not in one's knowledge of the absolute truth or one's grasping or ownership of the absolute truth, which is actually quite an anxious response, uh, but that there is an absolute truth, that there is an absolute being is uh, the great foundation of hope. And so I think you can, uh, as Kathleen said, you can go uh, about your life with an openness and a humility, uh, a letting go of that anxiety with, uh, if, with such a faith, uh, knowing that at the end of the quest is actually uh, uh, 
I would say, in, my, in Christian language, a God who is love, uh, who made the world with purpose, even when that purpose is concealed from us. And I think that kind of le- letting go of the need for knowing it all and giving it away to the transcendent is an extraordinary hope for, you know, it's an extraordinary way to then live with others. And I would then say, because not everyone will agree with that, of course, that I, I want to live in a society where we know how to disagree well. Not, not uh, I think liberalism has lost this. I think liberalism has become a, a kind of, not just a way of, of us living together, but actually a thick philosophy, a kind of ethics itself, an ethical vision, a very monolithic one, almost a fundamentalist one. Uh, whereas the original vision is a pluralist one where we can we can actually disagree about about very very serious matters and not kill each other <laughs> that that practice is fundamental to human survival well will there be two survivors at the end of the quiz it's wit's end we'll find out wit's end <laughs> Uh, yes, it's Whitsend, the uh, God Forbid quiz. As always, we begin with the buzzers. Now, Dr. Michael Jensen, you're a priest, so when you read the Bible, do you have any of this? Doubt. Doubt. <laughs> yes. You do. Okay. Well, what about the buzzer for Dr. Kathleen Gregory? When she enters the rooms at her clinical psychology practice, does she have this? Certainty. Certainty. <laughs> there you go. You're cer- certain. Okay, first question. Which conspiracy theory... Uh, emerged round about the time of the death of Roman Emperor Nero in the year 68. Doubt. Well, that would be the conspiracy that the Christians burnt Rome. Wow. Possibly, but the answer I've got, it's more about Nero, the conspiracy theory I have. I have a conspiracy theory about how Nero died. No guesses? Poisoned by his wife? They're always being poisoned by their wives. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Nero committed suicide, but various conspiracy theories at the time said, no, Nero actually faked his death and was secretly still alive, plotting his return, hmm. like a ancient Harold Holt. Uh, <laughs> next question. According to the Gospel of John in the Bible, which apostle refused to believe the resurrected Jesus had appeared to the ten other apostles until he could see and feel Jesus' crucifixion wounds for himself. Doubt. Well, I've got to answer that one, don't I? Yeah. <laughs> that's Thomas. Thomas the Apostle. Yes. Commonly known as Doubting, Doubting Thomas. Thomas, that's correct. For that reason. A question. In which religious tradition can one find this teaching? Things are not what they seem, nor are they otherwise. Certainty. In Buddhism. Yes, taken from the Lankavatara Sutra. Things are not what they seem, nor are they otherwise. So what are they then? I mean, that's not a quiz question. That's me wanting to know. Oh, you want me to answer that? Yeah. (laughs) If they're neither what they seem, nor are they not what they seem, what's left? They are both. Both and, and neither. Yes, both and neither. Okay, question. True or false? Here's certainty. Are you certain Christopher Columbus set out to prove the world was round, not flat? Doubt. No. Well, it is false, but it's one of the most baseless myths in history um, about ancient people. But the truth of the matter is that during the time of Columbus, hardly anyone, indeed before then as well, hardly anyone seriously thought the earth was flat. It's more a modern myth that's been projected onto ancient thinking. Interesting. Isn't, Isn't that interesting? Next question. The term, we're doing conspiracy theories. The term Clinton body count 
is attached <laughs> to which conspiracy theory? Oh, that sounds like Pizzagate to me. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what specifically does the Clinton body count reveal if it were true, which it isn't? Oh. Oh. Gee, I, I'm, I, I haven't stayed up late enough looking yeah. at YouTube enough. It's the number of people, either former President Bill Clinton or former Democratic presidential nominee Hillary Clinton, have between them murdered <gasps> uh, because in uh, targeted political assassinations of their opponents. Oh, my goodness. Inside and outside the Democratic Party. Yeah. And the answer, according to the Clinton body count team, is more than 50. Oh, my goodness. And I stress it's a conspiracy theory. Yes. It's, you know, it's only 40. Um, <laughs> next question. Which Pope said when somebody has an answer for every question, it's a sign they are not on the right road? Doubt. There have been a lot of Popes. Uh, mm. James and I am a Protestant. Yeah. What if I said but, the incumbent? Uh, I'd say Francis. Wow, you got it. Pope <laughs> Francis. It was an address to St Peter's Basilica in Rome in 2018. When somebody has an answer for every question, it's a sign that they're not on the right road. So says uh, uh, Pope Francis. I think Michael Jensen had at least tried an answer to every question, so he must be on the wrong road. Thank you for being on the program Thank anyway. Thank you for that too, James. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Michael's a theologian and the rector of St Mark's Anglican Church in Sydney. Dr Kathleen Gregory, thank you as well for being on. Thank you. Pleasure. Nice to be with you, Michael and James. Kathleen is a counselling psychologist in practice and at RMIT. And with that, we have reached the end of God Forbid. You can follow or share the podcast on the ABC Listen app. Email me at godforbid at abc.net.au. I'm James Carlton. Remember to be good. This has been God Forbid. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.